This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. If you have a question, please send it to us at podcasts at aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I have to do a little reminiscing here and express how much I like having engine monitors because I got the pleasure of doing some engine troubleshooting on the sharpest looking little A152 named Wilbur not too long ago. It had this intermittent engine vibration, miss, shake, something like that, with no engine data, an intermittent problem that we couldn't duplicate, which means troubleshooting became one of that real old school, just guessing what we might do next. A152 is the acrobatic one, right? Yes, it is. It's a beauty, too. And this and this engine problem only occurred inverted, correct? Yeah. <laughs> so you had to go shake it out, right, Paul? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually, uh, I, I did get to fly it, and uh, I did not do spins, at least not that I can recall. Did you float the dog? Float the dog. Well... Now, now, see, I've not heard that term. Is that a left coast term or is that a race airplane term? Or is no, this no, what you no, do no. when you're in high G. school? And I uh, know that's what I'm thinking because I've done that. With, get a dog with these really floppy ears and just put, do a little pushover and watch the dog smile. <laughs> I, I had a dog when I was in high school that used to follow me out to the run up area and he would chase the airplane until I took off. And his name was Stubby because he had a stubby tail. And so one day, Dad and I let him get in the plane. We're in a Cherokee. He jumps in the airplane, gets in the back seat, and he is so excited. We're kind of upset because we want him to stay away from airplanes. So we go up, and we're doing some rigging checks and stuff, and we do some stalls. And I look back, and he's got this panic look on his face, and it's decided that we would do a couple of negative G maneuvers. I've never seen a dog with an expression like that in my life, and you know how cats have claws that come out? This dog drew out some claws and he grabbed hold of the fabric of that back seat and it stretched up about four or five inches. Oh, but he was not going to let go. I've never seen that in my life. I was sure he turned into a cat. It was the funniest thing ever. He never followed us out to the runway after that, though. I've had some passengers like that. <laughs> uh, if, 
You know, if we're going to do dog stories, I, I, I have I have, I have a classic dog story that it does not involve negative team maneuvers, however, but a friend of mine used to fly night freight, used to fly canceled checks and stuff into LAX in, a, in an old clapped out Cessna 310 that had all the back seats removed and, and, and was turned into a cargo carrier. And this guy, he had a golden retriever who always used to fly with him. And it, it was, Golden Retriever was more or less his, his co-pilot. He, he would sit in a co-pilot seat. And, and the guy had a little water dish for the dog that he set back just behind the, the, the spar. So every so often, the, the dog would, would climb out of the pilot seat, go back, take a drink of water, come back and position himself in the co-pilot seat again. One night, this guy is, is flying and approaching to LAX, runway 24 complex at LAX. And um, he, he's in the soup, and he's waiting to break out on the approach. And at this particular moment, this dog decides that he needs a drink of water. So he hops out of the co-pilot seat to head back to his water dish, and his paw snags the right fuel selector and shuts down the right engine. <laughs> oh, gosh. This, this, this pilot was actually a pretty sharp pilot. And he managed to continue the approach on one engine, make a safe landing at LAX. Never allowed the dog to fly with him again. No. After that. It had a tragic ending. Poor Fido. That's terrible. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the pilot became incapacitated and the dog made the, <laughs> the landing. Dog <laughs> but he forgot yeah. to put the gear that, down. <laughs> that would have been a much better story. Can we, can we do this over? <laughs> All right, so our next question is from Mike about alternator times and uh, whether he should do something proactively. And I can warn you, boy, you're you're in for it now. <laughs> Go ahead with your question, Mike. Thanks, Paul. So uh, I've been enjoying flying an RV-9 for several years. The plane's about 12 years old. It has about 1,100 or just under 1,100 hours on it currently. The alternator is the original. And, and I'm knocking on wood as I say this. I have enjoyed no issues whatsoever, not only with the plane, but the alternator in particular. But I've read recently of people having bad experiences where alternators have failed with much lower hours than mine and getting stuck, stranded away from home, you know, and all of the issues that can come along with that. And so my question to you is, am I being a little bit foolish in not doing something and replacing that alternator now, even though it's not giving me problems? Or do I just continue to enjoy it and see how long, many more hours I can get out of it before it does come up with an issue? Well, before someone else dives in, I'm, I'm going to start with my general question because I'm, I'm an old avionics guy from way back when. Is your backup electrical system in good shape? <laughs> it is. It's a glass panel. So, and it does no, have a uh, battery. Uh, and so, really, your backup system is your battery or batteries. And if those are in good shape, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if the alternator fails? You don't fall out of the sky. At worst, it's going to be an inconvenience. So they will start there. And then I'm, I'm going to turn loose because I know where this conversation is going. Well, Mike, Mike tell, me, tell me a little bit more about your, your glass panel. Does your avionics stack include backup batteries in the avionics system or are you relying solely on the ship's battery? Mike, it has the, the Dynon glass panel has its own Ooh. battery for display. Yeah. 
I but in that. terms of radios, I, I don't have a backup power source for the radios or transponders. So I would right. theoretically but, lose those. But your PFD and MFD will stay alive independently of the electrical system of the airplane. That's the important part I was trying to bring out here. So, you know, the, when, when we look at these things, uh, and Paul was, was on exactly the track that I was going to go on, so I guess great minds think alike. But when we, when we think about whether we want to do some proactive preventive maintenance, what we need to think about is what are the consequences of the failure? And if the consequences of the failure are unacceptable, then we need to be proactive. If the consequences of the failure are acceptable, and lots of failures in airplanes are acceptable failures, then we probably should adopt a run-to-failure attitude. And it sounds to me like in your airplane, the consequences of an alternator failure are very benign. First of all, you've got a ship's battery that's going to keep your radios and stuff alive for an hour or so after the alternator fails. And you've got backup avionics for your PFD and MFD, which means you can keep the dirty side down and not fall out of the sky, even if the entire electrical system in your airplane failed. So to me, this is the absolute poster child example of a run-to-failure situation. Run the alternator till it fails. Now, or you could do something that I do. I, I don't have this issue with alternators because I got two alternators in my airplane, but my airplane constantly eats vacuum pumps. So do I replace the vacuum pumps proactively? No, but I carry a spare in the wing locker and, and I've been known to like replace them in <laughs> weird places. You know, I, and I got to carry a wrench. <laughs> and I've replaced vacuum pumps on the ramp in all sorts of weird places in the world. But so if you're really, really, really concerned, carry a spare alternator in the back of the airplane. Doesn't weigh that much. Uh, so that if your alternator fails, you'll, you'll, you'll have a spare you can slap on. But I don't know. It, That's not so easy to replace on the ramp. When you think about all the, um, the cowling that has to come off and the baffling to get to the alternator. Oh, it's but not, he's, an R, he's an RV owner. He can do this stuff but everywhere. But again, the, the, the important part is that in his airplane, a failure of an alternator has fairly benign consequences. And, and, and when the consequences of the failure are acceptable, the best thing to do is to not be proactive and to run the component to failure. And the other thing I'd like to point out is that all the alternator failures that I've had have not been abrupt. They've been a slow death. And many times it's the diodes that start to go bad in the alternator. You might lose a diode and you can hear that. It's called alternator whine. You can hear that in the intercom, it varies with RPM, and it's it's a dead giveaway. The alternator's raising its hand and saying, please, I need help. So it gives you plenty of advanced warning. The, the other failure mode in an alternator is that's typical is bearings. The bearings start to go, and I, I don't think that that gives you an indication that it's going bad. I think the charging just starts to degrade. Am I wrong, Paul? Or? No, you're right. Yeah, I, yeah. I would agree. It's... Once in a while, if an alternator fails, you know, completely and suddenly, it's usually because the field wire broke, especially on something like Mike's twin Cessna, where the alternator's right up in front in the wind stream and all that, and on Cirrus's, uh, Cirrus's, Cirrus? No, it's Cirrus's. But yeah, and again, just to stress a little bit, your ship's battery is the backup electrical system. So an alternator failure, it doesn't mean electrical system failure. 
It means you just suddenly, maybe suddenly or maybe slowly, like Colleen is saying, you now are on the battery. And that should, if you load shed quickly uh, and you have an indicator, which your Dynon should tell you when that alternator fails, yeah, you've got, you've got lots of time to do all sorts of things. Maybe you want to turn around and go home instead of landing away from home on that little vacation thing and, you know, do that way. So you, you kind of get to choose where the inconvenience occurs. Well, and the other thing is, you know, one as, you, as Colleen mentioned, one of the major failure modes of alternators is is the diode failure, you know, the rectifier assembly, and that's caused by excessive heat. And we see that problem a lot more on airplanes. Let's say a Cessna one eighty two or something, where the alternator is mounted behind the engine in a hot place where there isn't a lot of cooling air. But in in your in your Lycoming, the alternator is mounted in the front and gets really, really good airflow. And so the diodes are likely not to cook and they probably will last a long time. Well, I think the just hearing that there's a fair chance I would get an advanced indication of failure versus it just falling off completely. And and then, and Mike, to your point, I hadn't really thought about the idea of the consequences of a failure are not horrific in this particular case. I, I was thinking through the simple lens of if it fails, that's just bad. So I, I come away from this feeling much better knowing that there's probably not a horrible outcome, even if it did fail. Yeah. The, one of the basic principles of reliability-centered maintenance is is the focusing on the consequences of failure and doing preventive maintenance that's proportionate to those consequences. So things that are really bad we want to take proactive steps to avoid things that aren't so bad. We, we, we want to avoid uh, doing that. Now, if you had the retractable RV9ARG, you might be more concerned about an electrical failure, but I think you're safe with your RV9A. There's a, there's a retractable RV9? Sure there is, Paul. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but presumably it has, a, it has an emergency, an emergency backup, extension yeah. system, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> There's a retractable Cirrus too, right, Paul? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Colleen's just showing yeah. off her knowledge of all this stuff that we don't have a clue about, Paul. Yeah, the yeah, experimental world. I'm, I'm just world. like, wait a minute. Have I missed something? That's That was big for me to miss. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> probably not desirable. <laughs> yeah, excellent question, Mike. Of, of most importance, though, is right at the beginning when Mike the other Mike started talking. He said, great minds think alike. I'm just reminding him that this is all recorded so I can play it back to myself <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> Thank you for your question. We really, it was a good one. We enjoyed it. Thank you. Our next question is about maintenance careers. Derek has used the pandemic as an opportunity to maybe jump into professional aircraft maintenance. Go ahead with your question, Derek. Oh, thanks, Colleen. Uh, hello, Mike and Paul and Ian. It's an honor to be on the program and uh, honor to have you take my questions. Thank you very much. Great to so, have you. I, yeah, thank you. So, uh, as I, as Colleen already said, uh, I, you know, one of the many many people have lost their job because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. So. I figured out that in addition to the soft skills I have, that I need to obtain a hard skill. And I have a lifelong passion for aviation since I was as little as I could remember. And uh, so I just turned 46. I do have some flight time. I was a student pilot, 17 hours uh, under my belt. But that was back in 2009 before the last recession hit. And I had to stop that for financial reasons. So 
That being said, uh, I'm currently enrolling in a local junior college's aviation maintenance technician program. And I just had two questions. So the first one is, uh, am I too old to get into the trade? And uh, then uh, do you want me to ask the second question? Or do you want me to wait? Yeah, yeah I, I've been waiting to talk to you. So yeah. <laughs> you know, just go ahead and go with, go with all your questions. We'll throw them in there. And then do you have any suggestions for the field uh, that I should focus on? Are there any other specialties or certifications that would uh, strengthen my employability, like avionics, uh, aircraft type, or any new tech that's on the horizon? And uh, thanks in advance for answering this. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to jump in because I'm, I'm the guy that runs a shop. And uh, first off, you're definitely not too old. I've actually hired some people that would come to work at my shop as their retirement job in their 60s. So you're still you're still on the young side. Um, hey, Paul. Yeah. You, you know how old I was when I got my A&P? <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there. I, I, was, I was in my 60s when I got my A&P. Uh, well, yeah, see, retirement and I, job. And I, and I managed to turn it into a career, so. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so you're definitely not too old. You, you may feel that way when you're in class and everybody else is younger, but that's perfectly okay. As far as um, fields of focus, go for what interests you. I specialize in piston engine airplanes. I only work on basically three airplanes, type airplanes in our shop for the most part. And I love that. I love that sort of work. Some people, they get off on, on doing warbirds or nanchangs or whatever. You know, if you want to go go into the big world of aviation, go into the turbines and that sort of thing, it's a very different world. If you uh, if you really enjoy the troubleshooting skills and getting to work on the entire airplane, you'll have to go smaller. If you work in the big jets, you're going to be working on seats for six months, and then you'll do tires for six months and that sort of thing. But if you want to work on everything, go to the smaller shops. And I know it seems strange in the pandemic with a lot of mechanics being laid off, but at GA shops like mine, we are backed up currently for six months. We are completely packed for six months. I have five mechanics, not including myself, and we're looking for two or three more mechanics with piston engine aircraft experience. And we have two trainees in the shop at the moment, which is that's horribly expensive, but it's what you have to do for little airplane. And don't say that disrespectfully because it's what I work on, but for the piston airplane world, if you want to go into avionics, man, that's what that's actually where I started. My formal education and my beginning career was in aircraft electronics. I ran a shop and all that. But that has to be, it has to be something that you enjoy. And if you enjoy it, the work will be there for the most part. And so the next thing is, I need to know where you live, what your phone number is, send me an email. We're going to have to have that conversation. And, and how you would feel about moving to Western Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Western Tennessee is a wonderful place to live. I don't know where you're calling from, but this this LA. is better yeah. than wherever you are. He's in L L.A. Oh, it gosh. probably is better than L.A. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, you know, you can be a refugee if the smoke is too bad right now. I mean, you can move out here. We have nice, clean air. It's beautiful. Well, yeah. Der Derek, I teach at Miramar College down here in San Diego in the AMT program. And 
You are not the oldest student that I've had by far. Most of the older guys are people like me and Mike that finally decide to get their AMP after years of airplane ownership and paying people like Paul to maintain their plane. That's right. Evil so people like me. You're, you're actually ideal. And I, I will say the school's really busy. So uh, if you were able to get in, that's great. And um, I, it was one of the most rewarding things I ever did. And I think you'll enjoy it as well. Wow. Well, I'm so encouraged. Thank you, guys. Uh, and uh, thanks for the refugee uh, offer, Paul. I appreciate that. <laughs> that you know, that, that's not just a one-time deal. Call me. <laughs> uh, that's so kind of you. And, and, and Derek, what, what Paul is telling you is the same thing that almost all of the shop owners I know are going to tell you. They're, they're all desperate to hire more A&Ps or to train more A&Ps. The shops, they're... They, the, the only way they can grow is is by adding staff. And everyone that I talk to is having a, a devil of a time trying to find, to recruit new staff. I don't know if you saw the column that I wrote in uh, AOPA Pilot recently called The Looming Mechanic Shortage. But this is, this is just a gigantic problem in the industry. It's getting worse. And certainly the demand is, is absolutely there. Um, yep. If this is a field you want to get into, you are you are guaranteed to to get hired. Mm, yep. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. In addition to the pilot shortage, it's looming too as well. That's a complication. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good career. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Derek, I, I hope you follow through with this. And after the AMP, don't forget to keep going for your PhD of airplanes maintenance. That's your IA. It's definitely worth uh, worth getting. Yeah, you, you you have to have had an A and P for what's it three years I think in order yeah. to uh, qualify Worth for doing. the IA. But it's definitely, and if you go to work for a shop, they, they, they if it's a small shop, they'll encourage you to 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 go for yeah. your IA. We pay for it at our shop. If you show up to us with an A and P, we'll we'll sponsor you becoming an IA and pay you more after you've done it. Right, wow. you'll make I'm more. Yeah. I'm packing my bags, Paul. There you go. <laughs> what's your, no, what's your phone number? <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. All right. Well, Derek, thanks so much for coming on the show, and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you, guys. Keep it great, Derek. Take, Take care. care. All right. Bye-bye. Next up is David with a question that's right up Paul's alley. We're talking Cessna struts. What you got, David? Yeah, I'd like to ask the AMPs about the circumstances and situations that would lead to nose wheel shimmy on a Cessna 172 and how it could be avoided. Also, I've noticed that some Cessnas have a strut dampener and some don't. So I wondered if you could take it off or put it on as the situation allows. So uh, first off, every 172 eventually has shimmy. we just start there. <laughs> <clears throat> it's just, you know, it's just a function. So the first thing is, and, and this is your airplane, right? Well, it's a rental airplane. Uh, oh, okay, rental. Um, define for me how you determine it was nose wheel shimmy. Well, um, when it got to a certain speed, it felt like the airplane was shaking, you know, during a high-speed taxi. And also the same thing happens uh, upon landing, you know, upon the rollout. It, But... Why did you decide it was the nose gear? Well, the other the the main landing gear seemed to be okay on both sides. Uh, there are no flat spots. I checked that out, and um, and I kind of was trying to think about the process of elimination. 
But but I'm curious about this uh, strut situation. You know, sometimes they're on and sometimes they're not. Well, it not depends. the strut, but the, the dampener. The, the looks dampener like, looks like a shock so, absorber. Yeah, you know, on the side. On the Cessnas, they're always there. Yeah, and Ex- everybody has Ex- some form except, of it. Except for for Corvallis. Well, no, no, it has one. It's just built into the strut. No, it's, yeah, it's not a separate shimmy dampener. <laughs> it's but, not a separate part. But 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 every let's say conventional high wing. How about that? Every high, high wing, wing yeah. Cessna single has <laughs> yeah. has a shimmy dampener. If if you yeah. ever saw one that didn't have one, it was because somebody forgot to put it on. <laughs> you forgot to put it back on after they serviced it. <laughs> Well, you don't forget to put it on, first off, and because by the time you get to the runway, the nose wheel whole assembly will have basically come apart. Because <laughs> So you don't forget. You have this automatic reminder, just the fact that you taxi out. You will be reminded, oh, something must be missing. But the way you identify nose gear shimmy, there's a couple of ways. Is this a uh, roughly what your model, 172, is this? It's a 172M Mike. Okay. So it has the the round tube uh, gear, not the flat steel gear, correct? I haven't haven't poked around long enough to oh. check it out, but uh, see now you got something you have to go out and figure out. These are details now. If you're if you're going to have problems, you got to learn the details. So if it's nose gear shimmy, if the shaking is occurring from the nose gear, it will show up in the rudder pedals. I mean, they're going to bounce like crazy. You can have an almost identical feel. If you have a main tire out of round or out of balance or a brake disc that's uh, warped or something, the difference is you won't feel it in the pedals. And just an added bonus, if you pull the yoke back carefully and fully extend the nose gear, it will lock in the center position. And when it locks in the center position, that by definition stops all that shimmy. So there's where you want to go. Are you... uh, you probably aren't because you're a renter, but are you just happen to be a Cessna Pilots Association member? You know what? I do have a, a membership in the Cessna Pilots Association, and I probably wear the shirt on occasion too. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, so take advantage of that. Go to the website and look at tech note number one. Just to give you an idea of how long this has been a problem, the tech note was written in 1993. And it will tell you all the things you can do to deal with shimmy, which includes uh, checking out the tire, make sure it's not scalloped, obviously servicing the shimmy dampener. All these airplanes have a shimmy dampener. If it's not on there, somebody made a oopsie will be gentle. It has to have one on there, but it'll... Go ahead. Now, what what about the uh, there? Some of the older Cessnas are kind of worn a little bit where that nose gear is. Are there shims that you could actually put up in there, on the on the top of that strut? You're talking about the strut itself being loose. Well, if you if you're getting that shimmy and you haven't figured out how to solve it, you know, are there other procedures? Well, that's what I was saying. In that tech note, there's a whole list of everything you can do. So there's there's not a way to modify. Uh, but just to get everything in its proper condition, we'll take care of the shimmy until it wears again. Paul, wouldn't you agree that the majority of the time that single-engine cesses have nose wheel shimmy, it is caused by either loose torque links or torque link bushings 
or a tire that is severely out of balance, a nose wheel tire? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where it starts, but the shimmy dampers themselves are just very simple pistons with O-rings, and those puppies are just worn slap out, and the cylinder walls have scars in them and stuff now. So most mechanics will go in, they'll put new O-rings in it, they'll service it with fluid, and it seems to work for a little while. When that doesn't work anymore, it's time to upgrade to a new style. Shimmy Damper Lord makes one that's just the most amazing thing. It is very expensive, but it will solve the problem. But definitely torque links are a place where it starts. They get loose. There are kits to replace all the shims and the bushings and the and the bolts. And there is a very specific bolt in there. So it's not just standard AN hardware. Uh, I know you're not directing the maintenance on these rental airplanes, but... It's um, a close close tolerance bolt. It is a close tolerance bolt. And it's bolt, expensive, high too. Shear, and it's expensive. <laughs> it's all expensive. <laughs> it's all expensive. Colleen's yeah. been there. I've been there, definitely. Yeah. My Cardinal, well, I was chasing shimmy, and I replaced all those things and tightened up the torque links. And still, it was uh, I was experiencing a lot of shimmy, and I was rebuilding my shimmy dampener every oil change, every 30 hours. It was losing fluid. It was just crazy. And as a last-ditch effort, because we looked at the price of a new shimmy adapter, and as a last-ditch effort, the mechanic I was working with said, we're going to try one more thing. We're going to try some Granville strut seal. And he rebuilt the <laughs> shimmy adapter with a little bit of Granville strut oh. seal in it. And that was Mike's favorite. 20 years ago. And it, you know, I haven't even looked at my shimmy adapter. I've yeah, never had know, shimmy. You know, I love Granville Stretch Steel, but I never heard of using it in a shimmy damper. What, is, what a sensational idea. I, I love and it. I, I was told that what it does is it swells the rubber seals just a little bit to make it fit. And the mechanic thought that somebody, not me, had put the shimmy damper in a vice to rebuild it. And I never did that. But I was very frustrated because the spring goes everywhere and you get hydraulic fluid in your eyes and stuff. But somebody made it slightly out of round, and we were about to pull the trigger on a new one. And he said, let's try this one last thing. So That's but it awesome. doesn't sound like your problem is that your shimmy dampener is losing fluid. I would check all the nuts and bolts and the whole strut first. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I did uh, look online a little bit, uh, and some of those shimmy dampeners, the new ones, are, are about one AMU, about 1000 bucks. <laughs> That's right. Or more. Yeah, yeah. but... Yeah. but but you're a renter pilot, so it's not yeah. your expense. That's right. You're right. But if we can keep the cost down, then everyone benefits. Yeah. yeah the main the, thing is to get them to fix it. So that was a great question, David. Thanks so much. And we yeah. really enjoyed it. You take care. Thank you. Okay. Well, our next question here is about sticking valves. Go ahead, Todd. What do you have? Well, I read Mike Bush's article about uh, preventing uh, valve sticking, and uh, I've got a 1975 uh, Arrow with the IO360 Lycoming in it, and I would have trouble getting my cylinders to stay up above 350 most of the time. I might be able to do it using a, a low-speed climb on a hot day, but usually my cylinder head temperatures cruising along are around 300 plus or minus 20 and so wow. forth. So I'm wondering, you know, what I should do if that's going to be a problem. Am I going to be susceptible to valve sticking or what I should do or if that's and, not a problem? Colleen, you have a sort of similar engine. 
to his arrow. Do you ever do the uh, valve wobble check on yours? I, I did it once. Did it once, yeah? Uh, yeah, and they were all fine. We did ream one valve just because I had the reamer and it was close. But um, in 3,500 hours, I've never had a stick. But I will say my cylinder head temperatures are a lot higher than yours. <laughs> yep. I would give my right arm to have that problem. I bet your oil temperature <laughs> is low too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> And that's fascinating. I, I think that the, the cowling on my Cardinal is very inefficient for pressure cooling. And I think his arrow must be a lot better in, in how it's cowled and baffled. So Todd, just to give you what we're talking about, there's a service bolt in 388 from Lycoming. And it talks about reaming the guides. I used to provide a maintenance service for a small freight operator that had four Cherokee sixes, which have Lycoming engines. And we would do this check as a service bulletin every 400 hours at the time. It's been stretched now to 1,000 hours. And we would check the wiggle of the valves, took about an hour per cylinder, something like that. No engine monitors. This is 20 or whatever years ago. And we found, unlike Colleen, that we would have on each airplane every 400 hours, we would have at least two valves that had to be tapped out of their guide with a mallet. That's how tight they were. With no problem showing from the pilot, nobody ever complained about anything. But uh, it, it can definitely happen. And, and Mike has wonderful information on that, But and, and he's probably the better one to answer the question. But definitely uh, taking a look at that service bulletin. And if you're ever concerned about valve sticking, you can ream those guides, do the, we call it the rope trick. And when you ream the guides in service, it won't take any metal out. It only takes goo. Mike knows all the technical terms, but for me, it's goo. You know, just get the goo out of the crud. guide. It's crud, Paul. Crud, crud. I'm sorry. If if you're on the left coast, it's crud. If you're in Tennessee, it's goo. I thought goo was liquid and crud was solid, but what do I know? Well, about you know. About Tennessee. It's, it's kind of it's in the middle. When it comes out, it's still kind of sticky. It's not hard yet most of the time. Well, Todd, since, since this... This uh, whole concern arose from an article that I wrote. I'd like to respond, but I've got a few questions for you. Um, one is, uh, do you have an engine monitor installed on, the, on this? Yes. And do you know what kind of uh, cylinder head temperature probes it uses? Are they the ones that screw into the, into the boss on the bottom of the cylinder head, or are they spark plug probes? They are, uh, they're not the spark plug. Okay, good. Okay, so I know what I'm dealing with here. And uh, my second question is, briefly, what is your leaning procedure? Do you operate this engine lean a peak, rich a peak? Generally rich a peak. How rich a peak? Uh, about 80, uh, 80 degrees. Oh, okay, so you run the thing, thing fairly rich. I'm not a, a huge fan of the, of the Lycoming wobble test because it's fairly invasive and it takes a, a fair amount of time. I would like to make the following suggestion. I would suggest that you, uh, on a fairly regular basis, like any time you have the spark plugs out for maintenance, that you do a borescope inspection of your cylinders and that you do the borescope inspection in a way where part of what you do is rotate the propeller to open the exhaust valve fully and then with the borescope, you can look behind the exhaust valve and get a look at the, at the valve stem that's protruding out of the guide. 
that's the area that if there's a lot of deposit buildup is, is going to be responsible for valve sticking. So you can get a pretty good visual look at the condition of those valve stems using a borescope without having to take anything apart other than just removing a top spark plug. So I like that test better than the wobble test because it's just a lot less invasive and it, it gives you a pretty good view of what's going on. And if you're Valve stems, the lower part of the valve stems, the part you can see with the borescope, look pretty clean, then you really have nothing to worry about. If they are, are looking pretty nasty and have a you know crusty buildup on them, then it, it might be worth doing a wobble test to see whether it's gotten to the point where you need to ream something out. But I, I would just take a look with the borescope, and if everything looks clean, then... Just keep on trucking. Don't worry about it. So, Mike, that that raises an interesting question. Uh, The service bulletin 388 says that we should ream the guides when the valve stem is sticking in the guide or it's it's too tight. But you're saying the deposits land on the valve stem itself, not in the guide. So the reaming takes care of the hole that the valve stem operates in, but the stem itself, you're not removing those deposits. What am I missing? Um, no. Paul is saying something, so please well, continue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when you do your rope trick, you pull uh, the stem out of the spark plug hole and try to clean it off with, uh, <laughs> with, 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 with a little emery cloth or something? No, no. All we do, because even if you did that, which I'd never really considered that, the part of the stem that you want to get to is still inside the cylinder because you're only getting to that last little bit. So there's not a whole lot you can do to the valve itself. And all you're doing with the rope trick, you push the valve down into the cylinder and you just run the reamer through to clean the, what do you call it, uh, Colleen? The hole it rides in, the no, guide. No, no, no. Yeah. No, the, not oh, the, the crud, yes. The crud, yes, crud. Okay, we've got to get all the crud out. We want to be all left coast if we can here. Yeah, I, 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 Colleen calls it crud. You call it goo. I call it lead bromide. But what well, it heck? is, yeah, lead bromide because it, <laughs> well, it, con- well, it, it condenses. You know, it finds something cool and it condenses. Yeah, you know, so yeah, and you wouldn't want to do the the, the reaming unless you had uh, information that told you that you probably have a sticky valve. But there isn't much you can do to get that stuff off the valve. It's really hard. It looks a little different. Sometimes uh, I had one one time, it looked like black fuzz and it's really hard stuff. There's not much you can do to get rid of it. And it actually usually enlarges the diameter of the guide, makes it bell mouth. So that's not going to make the valve stick necessarily. It may make the valve wobble, hence the generic term of the bulletin. And it might make the valve not seat properly on the valve seat. By the way, just out of curiosity, have you ever considered operating that engine Lena Peak? It's a, it's a it you know, it's an IO360. Usually those things operate pretty well Lena Peak right out of the box without having to tune the nozzles or anything. When I look at a cylinder with a borescope, I can always tell whether the engine's been operated Lena Peak or Richard Peak because if it's been Richard Peak, there's all sorts of crud all over everything. Yeah, or what Paul would call goo, and and if it's <laughs> no, Lena that would peak, be crud because in the it, cylinder it's hard. If it's Lena Peak, everything looks pretty darn clean. And so, uh, again, I I think that 
if you're so inclined to experiment with operating that engine lean a peak, it's a good candidate. The um, four-cylinder Lycoming's tend to have pretty good mixture distribution and uh, will run successfully lean a peak without doing too much nozzle swapping and so on. And How much lean of peak do you run? What temperature? Uh... Well, I've got a couple of videos on that, but, but basically you can run a variety of lean of peak mixture settings. The lean end of the range is determined by how far you can go before the engine starts running unacceptably rough. And the rich side of the range is determined by excessive cylinder head temperature. So, which for a Lycoming, you'd like to keep the CHT, say, 400 degrees or less. So, uh, anything in that range between change of underwear rough on the lean side and, and 400 degrees cylinder head temperature on the rich side is an acceptable lean a peak setting, and you just have to decide where you want to be. If you want to go as fast as possible, you're going to want to be on kind of the richer lean of peak, not not so lean, because the further you lean, the the the, the less power the engine puts out, and the slower you go. Yeah, Todd, if you're, don't if, tell if you're Mike. Trying to, don't tell Mike, but I I like to operate rich of peak because I like to go fast. So oh no, <laughs> I'm with you. There, there's going to be an <laughs> offline discussion. I feel it coming. And, and I have tried Lena Peak in my IO360, and it's rough. I, I don't like the way it stumbles a lot. So it may be an uneven distribution. So, Yeah, I, I have the same, the same caution yeah. with it. It just seems to run pretty rough. Yeah. But I, I could play with it and yeah. see if I can get it to work. Todd, can I ask? I'm not concerned about the sonar head temperature. Todd, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Did, do you have an engine monitor now? No. Did you, it, was there a time that you owned the airplane when you did not have an engine monitor? When I bought the airplane, uh, what was it? I don't know, four years ago or so. It did not have one, but I had one put in pretty, pretty, pretty quick. So, did you follow the? Uh, I don't know what your model it is. So, I don't know if you have a POH or just a, a AFM. Did you follow the manufacturer's recommendations on how to lean the engine? Well, I've been using. Uh, I forget where I got the information. An article <laughs> somewhere, I think. Okay, uh, but it does have a a lean of peak and rich of peak feature on it. So okay. you, just, you press the button and then it'll give you, it'll help you do the... No, no, no I understand that. What I'm what I'm saying is, and, and this is, I, I do a lot of classes on the 182 and I find it interesting that if you lean a single engine Cessna 172, 182 per the manual, it will tell you to lean until the engine runs rough and then enrich until it runs smooth. On a 182, that means that if you do it that way without an engine monitor, you do it per the manual, that means you're going to have two cylinders running lean of peak, two cylinders near peak, and two cylinders running rich of peak. And everybody complains that all oh, rich of peak, lean of peak in the big debate. Well, 182 owners, they're the middle of the road people. They make everybody happy by running part of the engine every way you can imagine. And so if you lean your engine till it runs rough and then go just a little bit forward on the mixture until it's smooth, on a Lycoming, more than likely, you're running just barely lean of peak. And that's exactly how the manufacturer tells you to do it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, yeah, that is how they recommend. Yep. Without a monitor. 
without a monitor. So, but don't tell them they told you to do that. <laughs> okay. Well, Todd, you know, it sounds like we gave you a lot of suggestions for how to check that your valves are doing okay, but we didn't tell you how to keep them a little hotter. But I hope that, you know, the body of knowledge that we gave you is useful going forward. You know, maybe we didn't directly answer your question, but at least we'll keep you safe. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that is. Uh, I'll fool around with leaning and so forth and hmm. what I can come up with. And, uh, and fool, fool, around with, fool around with the borescope. Yeah, and then yeah. in the shop, I'll have them, uh, have them pull out the borescope and take a look. Definitely. They're a lot of fun to play with. So They are. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the show and, and good luck with the arrow. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Enjoy, Bye-bye. Todd. Uh-huh. <laughs> Bye-bye. Next up, we have Scott, who has questions that everybody asks when they first start flying airplanes. A great one. Welcome, Scott. Uh, great. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you guys for having me on today. I've always enjoyed reading the articles in the various uh, AOPA-sponsored magazines, publications. I've been getting into the podcast, a uh, regular listener of um, Hangar Talk, so I'm, uh, I'm real excited to be here. I'm a, about a 20-year helicopter uh, pilot, uh, mostly turbine time, military background, and just getting into the fixed-wing world, the um, less than 200 hours fixed-wing time probably at this point. And there are a lot, always piston engine questions that, uh, that pop up. Uh, the recent one here uh, has to do with throttle rigging. There's two sort of unrelated parts of my question. I'll, I'll hit you with the first one and then uh, grab the second one here in a minute. Uh, the first one is single engine airplane. It's a uh, uh, old Air Force T-41 Charlie. Yeah, Skyhawk. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a 172 uh, with the IO 360D 210 horsepower engine, which you know here in my neck of the woods is helpful. At the end of the run-up procedure, the the checklist calls for us to pull the throttle to idle, ensure the RPM stabilizes around 850, and then we can put the bump it back up a little bit so we're not fouling the spark plugs and and a more comfortable RPM for the engine. Uh, my assumption is, my question is, why are we really doing that? I'm assuming we're doing it to make sure the engine doesn't quit when we pull the throttle to idle. One day, one of them did. I took it back to the hangar and the mechanic said, hey, this one just does that, so don't pull it back so far. So I thought... <laughs> okay. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. So my what question is, for folks is, what, what can you tell me about some of the, the theory and uh, background behind... Uh, how the throttle is rigged, what that check is actually checking, and how much of a bunch of uh, smoke was I being uh, given <laughs> with that answer? Uh, well, I'll I'll start because everybody's kind of just being quiet there, and apparently I I talk a lot, so there you go. the The idle actually should be about six hundred to six fifty. That little O three hundred will just sit there and just lope right along beautifully at about six hundred RPM. If it's not idling then it's got problems with the carburetor and it should idle just fine. And you should now, if you yank it back from 1800 back to idle, it may have a little problem. But if you if you give it just a normal reduction in power back to idle, it should sit there and idle along just dandy. If it doesn't, if it's the injected engine, the uh, flow divider up on top of the engine is probably getting really hard and stiff. Paul, is it possible that the idle is set too low? Is it just a rod end adjustment on the on the throttle? 
Well, if he's pulled it back too far, but I mean, if you pull it back slowly and let it get to 600, it should sit there and just lope along at 600 or 650 right. very nicely. It, you know, the, we talk about throttle rigging, but th- there's three separate adjustments that, that affect how the, the uh, uh, fuel-injected Continental runs when you pull the throttle back all the way. There's the uh, idle stop on the throttle, which, which is, is what, what it hits when you pull it back all the way. That's one adjustment, and there's an adjustment screw on that. Then there's the adjustment on the fuel pump, which is what the, what the fuel pressure is at idle RPM, and it's the second adjustment. And then there's the idle mixture adjustment. And so there's actually three separate adjustments that, that affect how the engine idles. And the adjustments interact with one another. So it, it takes a little practice and usually a couple of tries to get it correct. But if it's, if it's adjusted correctly, as Paul says, that engine should run with the throttle pulled all the way back at, at between 600 and 650 RPM and it should run. Well, I was going to say smoothly. But yeah, not quite. No, 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 en- no engine <laughs> runs smoothly at six hundred <laughs> RPM. But it, it, but it'll it'll run reliably. Let's say at six six hundred RPM and and won't threaten to quit. There's one very simple test you can do that will give you a, an idea for the idle mixture. For, first of all, you preferably do this with a warmed up engine. But if you pull the throttle all the way back to to idle, and and the idle stop really should be set at something in the 600 to 700 range. And then you very slowly pull the mixture control back from full rich towards idle cutoff. You should see an RPM rise. And that RPM rise should be somewhere in the vicinity of 50 RPM. And then if you continue to pull the mixture control back, then the engine will... The, the RPM will go down and the engine will start to stumble and threaten to quit. But if you don't see any RPM rise, then the idle mixture is set too lean. And if you see too much rise, say 100 RPM or more, that, then the idle mixture is set too rich. And again, it's just a simple screwdriver adjustment to, to change that. But for the engine to idle properly, all three of those adjustments, the the throttle stop, the low RPM fuel pressure adjustment on the fuel pump, and the idle mixture adjustment on the fuel control unit. All three of those need need to be adjusted correctly for the engine to uh, to idle properly. So the the A and P who said, "Well, that that airplane does does that." He's he was just too lazy to make the adjustments. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, the second question I have has to do with twin-engine airplanes. At same location flying Air Force trainers. Actually, this is an old Army trainer, the T-42A. It's a B-55 Baron. has the coal mill engine conversion, so it's the IO-520E engine. I expect that probably with older airplanes, as you push the throttle levels levers forward, you're going to get some kind of a difference in response between the left and right engine. This one's got a pretty pronounced response that actually kind of led to a safety issue on the runway when the instructor was pulling a mixture to simulate an engine failure. And I kept tweaking with the throttles thinking, oh, this is really, really lagging this time, even worse than before. (laughs) So the question is, how much is acceptable? How much monkeying with the throttles am I 
expected to do on these older airplanes, or is this also another situation where the the uh, the airplane probably needs little attention? And how do I know? Well, I don't think it has anything to do with the age of the airplane, because if you buy a brand new Baron, it still it still has engines that were designed in the 1950s. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. There tend to be some asymmetries in the way that these engine controls are set up that, that makes it quite challenging to rig the engine so that the throttles track exactly the same throughout their range. There are a bunch of adjustments that can be made. It's very, it's, it's a totally mechanical system, but it's hard to get, to, to get the throttles to track together uh, precisely. And typically, if, if the throttles are together at full power and they're together at idle, you tend to have to accept a certain amount of split between the two throttles in, 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 in mid-range. You can spend a lot of time tweaking it and, and you can probably get it better if it's, if it's bothering you, but it's, uh, it's sort of a, a pain to rig those things. Paul, you, you have any, anything to add to that? <laughs> yeah, everyone expects uh, twin engine airplanes, that both engines are gonna act exactly the same. And the reality is you can't even get all six cylinders on one engine to act the same. So the chances of getting two separate engines to do the same thing, it just isn't gonna happen. There's imperfections in the induction system and the piping and the way that the uh, induction air filter is mounted, the magnetos aren't gonna be timed exactly the same. The fuel pressures are not gonna be exactly the same. So, you know, if they don't track together, just take that as a challenge to, uh, you know, maneuver those throttle levers a little better and make it happen and use the rudder. But, you know, but again, <laughs> if, the, if the throttles are severely mismatched and it's driving you nuts, it probably can be improved by spending, by having the mechanic spend some, some time adjusting it. And it usually takes a couple of tries to get it right. But right is never going to be perfect. Right just is probably going to be better. <laughs> uh, normally, I think if, if someone takes a little bit of due diligence, the throttles will be close enough to where just pivoting your wrist with the two levers in your hand should be plenty good. If it takes, you know, more than that, then maybe they could use a little better tweaking. Yeah, if the split is more than one knob's diameter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, in Mike's book, there's a chapter, I think it's the engine's book, uh, called They They All Do That. And you hear that a lot from mechanics, <laughs> like like the nose wheel shimmer we talked about yeah, earlier. Yeah. Just ignore it. They all do that. Well, yeah. that's not that's always really a red true. that's always a red flag. <laughs> yeah. So you're right to raise these issues and um, get your maintenance guy to fix it. Thanks. I, I think uh, for uh, some further information about that particular airplane, the hand movement deal on the throttles does take care of most of it. Uh, but when you're talking about uh, throttle knob differences, we're talking two, three, bordering on four initially. Oh, that's no, oh, that's yeah. way too much. So yeah. it's it's a matter of if you if you if you know what's going to happen, you lead with the right engine and just kind of <laughs> let it go up three or four ahead, and then come up with the the left engine. It doesn't oh. try to run you off the runway. Like a skymaster, <laughs> lead with the rear engine. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> well, that 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 sounds like it's unacceptably bad and really needs to needs to be worked on. But it could take several hours of labor to get to get that tweak correctly. 
Okay, and, and I, I, your uh, answers there really did help me understand a little better there. Like somebody says, you know, what does right look like, <laughs> or sm- sound like, or smell like? Right. Uh, that's um, it, the only way you know is by asking folks like yourself. And I, I truly appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate the question, Scott. It was uh, very interesting, and um, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Enjoy. Well, that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we would love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you want to hear. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.